As we enter flu season, I'm super excited to share that we are finally launching a comprehensive immune support product. It's called Immune Support, and it's a targeted blend of nutrients designed to provide a broad spectrum support to the body's immune reserves to keep you healthy and functioning at your best, despite the increased risk of seasonal illness during this time. The formulation includes quercetin, a powerful bioflavonoid that aids in supporting the immune system. Next, it includes vitamin C and N-acetylcysteine as potent antioxidants to promote respiratory function and support the function of quercetin. And lastly, it has vitamin D3 and zinc, which are important micronutrients needed to create a robust immune reserve. This blend includes all of the above, 600 milligrams of vitamin C, 2,500 IUs of D3, 25 milligrams of achelated zinc, 600 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine, and 250 milligrams of quercetin are in two capsules. And this product was formulated with those dosages in mind to be safe for those that are pregnant or lactating. If you want more, however, you can easily double the dose of the product, and it can also be combined with your daily complete multivitamin or my favorite product, mitochondrial complex. Research has shown that those taking this blend of nutrients fare much better with illnesses like viruses, making this the perfect time of year to stock up on immune support. In addition to being a fantastic option for anybody looking to boost immune reserves and support a healthy immune response, a bottle of immune support would fit perfect in your loved one's holiday stocking. Use code immune support for 10% off at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now back to the show. With kibble, essentially, we're feeding our pets Doritos and beef jerky sticks. I mean, that's the quality of the, of the foodstuffs going in there. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Ruth Roberts. Today, she's going to talk about how longevity in pets can be increased by spaying and neutering later or not at all, and how feeding a whole food diet that is high in vegetables and fiber can be made in a crock pot. This is part one of a two-part series. In part two, we'll dive into what vaccinations, flea tick and heartworm medications are actually necessary and which are not. This interview is a blast. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Ruth Roberts, who has supported thousands of dogs and cats to overcome health hurdles like kidney disease, GI illness, allergies, and cancer. Her natural approach to healing creates a gentle yet effective path for your pet to take on their journey to well-being. Dr. Ruth created the original Croc Pet Diet, a balanced home-cooked diet for pets as the foundation of health. Dr. Ruth will help you develop a health plan for your pet via e-learning videos on a range of health topics and one-on-one coaching. Welcome to the show, Dr. Roberts, and whoever you have with you here. <laughs> and, and this is Hio. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dr. Stephanie Gray. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Well, tell us your story. How did you become, as they call you, I know you say on your website, your pet's ally, and kind of learn to blend functional medicine methods for the caring of animals? Like a lot of doctors, it took me getting sick and realizing that there just weren't good options. I was very fortunate to find a functional medicine practitioner in uh, South Carolina, where I was living at the time. And the help that he was able to give me was just unbelievable because I'd seen so many of my own clients come in with IBS, with fibromyalgia, things like that. And it was horrible because I watched so many of them be turned into junkies. So they started on NSAIDs and then they got 
pushed up and up and up into narcotics. And I knew I did not want to go that route. So I was really, really fortunate to find uh, find this doc. And that made me open my eyes and realize that if it's working for me, if simple things like changing your nutrition, eliminating certain things from your diet would have such a profound effect for me, what would it do for pets? And interestingly, at the same time, I had started studying acupuncture at the Chi Institute in Reddick, Florida. I had a dog that had bacterial endocarditis. And yeah, and that's pretty ugly stuff. Uh, Most dogs, unfortunately, die from it. Thankfully, she sort of she got through it and it was sort of not as severe a case as some other pets. But what they told me is, okay, start cooking for her and use these herbal formulas, do these acupoints. Well, she had wanted nothing to do with acupuncture, but she thought the idea of home cooking was fantastic. She took the herbs. We went through conventional therapy as well. And she contracted this at nine and lived to be 13. So, I mean, that's just crazy amazing. But that's what convinced me. We really have to start with the basics with pets. So you were having your own health challenges when you were already a vet, and then you kind of applied them to animals, your animal in particular, and then to... (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly it. So I started out trying to fight my way back out of fibromyalgia. And the more I learned, the more I'm thinking, this is stupid. Why am I not doing this for animals? That's exactly it. I learned how to translate it to help dogs and cats. And that's really why I'm so excited about this interview, because I also kind of felt stupid, like, well... Gosh, I'm earning my living by helping other patients rebuild their health. But yet I have this dog at home who's probably eating crappy food and I'm not really applying any of those principles to her. And so I was just excited to meet you and obviously excited for this conversation. So let's talk about food. Let's go there. I've had other veterinarians on the show and they've given great information to our listeners. And I I know there's some debate on what the best food is for animals, but I think all the vets I've talked to agree that kibble is not the best, right? It's processed. It's just crap. Can you expand on that? So let's talk about what's not good food. And then you, we can expand onto what you think good food. Right. I mean, and that's essentially it. I mean, with kibble, essentially, we're feeding our pets Doritos and beef jerky sticks. I mean, that's the quality of the of the foodstuffs going in there. I take m- many of my holistic colleagues are all about raw food. And because I was trained in traditional Chinese medicine, I learned that cooked food is better because it helps sort of present the digestive system with pre-digested food. And so something that's going to be easy for the animal, for the person to further digest and assimilate. So the argument is, is that raw food is the ancestral diet of dogs. And I would argue that it is, but it's also our ancestral diet. And I don't think many of us would do well eating raw meat all the time. I think there's pretty clear evidence now that dogs, Canis familiaris, diverged from wolves, lupus uh, canis, something like 40,000, I said it backwards, Canis lupus, something like 40,000 years ago. What happened is, is that they evolved with us, Homo sapiens. And so first they're eating our garbage, then they're eating our leftovers, and then finally what we fed them. And as our diet has evolved so rapidly since the 50s, really, 1950s, theirs has as well. And we've all gone from pretty much a whole foods diet that would be based on what's available in the region where we're located and into this highly processed, shipped thousands of miles, just 
mess that we're currently in. For that reason, I, I really think that if we back it up several steps and start cooking for our pets again in a balanced ratio, so roughly one-third protein, one-third fat, healthy fats, one-third carbohydrates, both vegetables and other simple carbohydrates, that really is the best way to achieve health for pets. Can you say that again? You said one-third protein, one-third fat? One-third healthy fats, and then one-third carbohydrates. So basically, it's the whole foods nutrition approach. And how would that compare to kibble? Kibble is roughly 65 to 80% carbohydrate. And sadly, it's all highly processed. So it's like, boom, sugar. So is that why our dogs and cats are getting diabetes and other chronic diseases? I mean, is that one of the main, do you feel like, reasons? It's one of the big reasons. And here's the really sad thing. In our effort to, and this is a segue away from food, but we'll come back to how we can fix this issue. The problem is actually spaying and neutering because we are removing Mm. their gonads at six months. So I used to think, oh, it's because they're never allowed to become endocrine competent. Their systems never develop. It turns out, so the more recent research actually is that the amount of luteinizing hormone that is produced in their bodies is something like 20 to 30 times what it would be in an intact dog or cat. And what happens worse is that all of these tissues that shouldn't have receptors for luteinizing hormone grow receptors, and they're in the brain the gut, the joints, the immune system. And so this really is the proposed mechanism for why there is such an epidemic of chronic disease in our pets. And then if you throw a horrible, highly processed pro-inflammatory diet on top of that, it's just a recipe for disaster. Want to unpack a lot of that? So let's let's go to the surgery. (laughs) (laughs) We we will come back to food, but since we we went on that tangent, when I met you, that was kind of one of my concerns that I, I guess... And regrets that I have with my mini golden doodle. We got a puppy right before we, my my husband and I became pregnant and it was our first child and our vet kind of pressured us into, you're going to be overwhelmed with your first baby. You might as well just get your dog, you know, fixed now and not have to worry about it after the baby's here. And I thought, now hang on here. If I have female patients who go through uh, surgical menopause early in life, they're at greater risk of heart disease, of bone loss, of memory loss. We'll just say a mood, an impacts on mood and just overall well-being. And so I'm thinking, What's the impact on my dog? And my, I said, can I delay the surgery? And my dog kind of said, my dog, my vet said, you don't want your dog going into heat. You don't want to deal with all that. And she didn't have a lot of input. And now I know my intuition was right. So next time around, I'm going to delay the surgery. But let's stay on this topic. So what is the solution? And like, how can we best delay these sort of surgeries? A lot of it is you being your pet's advocate and saying, thanks so much for the information, but I'm going to wait for a little longer because I've read this and this and this. And frankly, the University of California, Davis, started doing, started publishing research papers in 2013, showing that there was a link between increased disease of all sorts in pets that are spayed and neutered versus pets that are not. And they started with the Golden Retriever study and then the Golden Retriever Labrador study. And then since then, they've been just doing massive review of all of their patient records and looking, you know, what happens to the endocrine system, what happens with other pets. And those two breeds, Goldens and Labs, have far more disposition to these horrible diseases, but it's the same for all pets. 
But I'm pretty sure I was told the latter. I'm pretty sure I was told, oh, by having this surgery performed on your animal, they'll have reduced risk of, is it mammary cancer or what? Mammary cancer or breast cancer. And then they have increased risk of hemangiosarcoma, lymphosarcoma, osteosarcoma, all of these really awful cancers. And are those more common than mammary cancer? I mean, if we really break it down, like are those... More, more aggressive, it sounds like. Are they more Oh, it's prevalent? horrible. It's horrible. And I am old enough. When I started practice in 1990, 90% of pets were intact. I would rather treat mammary cancer or prostate cancer in males all day long than hemangiosarcoma, lymphosarcoma, these horrible, horrible cancers. Good to know. So we need to be our pet's advocate. How long should we delay? Like for the endocrine system, I guess get the benefits of the hormones, right? How long do we wait? Ideally, at least until five, because that's going to be roughly equivalent to when we as humans would go through menopause and andropause. There is a guy that did the old gray muzzle tour and he looked at Rottweilers that were 13 and 14 and 15, which is incredibly unusual. None of them were spayed or neutered, and they died with cancer, not of cancer. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So his recommendation is five or why, you know, unless there's a medical reason to spay or neuter, don't. So then, and I don't know a lot about this, but like, so does a female dog, how, how frequently would a female dog go into heat? In those five years, is it like twice a year? Or I don't even know. Well, this is the other thing that's weird. It used to be twice a year, and then it got to be once a year, and they got to be older and older before they would go into heat. And I think that is related to the pro-inflammatory diet. It's something you just have to deal with. It's kind of like having a moody teenager for about three weeks, and then it's over. But, you know, we lived with dogs for thousands of years that were intact before we started spaying and neutering everybody. So we got used to it. We taught our dogs manners, for lack of a better description, about how to behave around each other with being intact dogs. But it's very difficult in this day and age, sadly. My brain is literally thinking, okay, so if I do this for my next dog and I want to take them to doggy daycare, they just can't go during that month. You just avoid... Right. Because you can't really monitor. Like I can help my with my dog's behaviors if we're out on a walk. But if I drop them off at doggy daycare, yeah. So just avoid those. Right. And, And the other problem is this, is that for many of the daycares and the boarding kennels, they won't accept dogs that are intact because their insurance policies prohibit them from doing so. Have to get a dog sitter. There's an alternative. That's the best option. Yeah. 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 Group mommy daycare. Well, the great information. Let's go back to what you feel is the best food, literally whole food in your crock pet diet. So let's, can you break that down and kind of explain what that is? So the original crock pet diet was essentially a variation on some recipes that my professors at the Chi Institute taught me. And as I learned more and more, I incorporated different food sources. But essentially what it is, is a lean cut of protein. So the least expensive are typically pork, beef, and then turkey or chicken, if your pet's not sensitive, and unfortunately many are, and then uh, healthy fats. So things like avocado oil, grapeseed oil, healthy vegetable oils that are processed correctly, and then lots and lots and lots of veggies. So things like brassica species, so broccoli, kale, cabbage, other veggies. And then I I'm a big proponent of using beans because they are essentially slow carbs. So meaning that the fiber prevents that big hit of sugar from being absorbed and then using grains as well. So rices, 
quinoa, things like amaranth, things of that nature, and then the more kind of standard issue ones of oats and things like things like that, rice. So essentially, that's it. It's very simple to make. The idea is you put it all in a slow cooker, or if you don't have one, you would use a roasting pan in the oven, big stock pot on top of the stove, whatever is easiest for you to do. And you have a video, I watched it the other day, of you, literally you preparing this entire thing, chopping your vegetables and putting everything into the pan and cooking it. And then afterwards, I noticed you had your, what's it called when you mix up the food? The Oh, the immersion blender. Immersion yes. blender. Yeah. So you basically broke it all down and that's just, is that so they just won't choke? So the animal... Well, <laughs> yes, sadly. Actually, we had a dachshund that, that just was such a pig. She would inhale her food. And so we had to puree it into a pate for her because she would she choked herself out a couple of times. Sure. Our cat Pepe would happily eat it as, as is, is with a little mixing. Hayo, our, our little poodle that's with us now, has no teeth. So for her, it's necessary to puree it. So I noticed there's some other additives. So you put in turmeric and mustard and even some salt, some calcium, garlic. Can you speak to some of those? So uh, the calcium is necessary to balance the diet so that the calcium phosphorus ratio is correct in the protein. The salt is there to actually increase the chloride level. We add kelp for iodine and then the culinary herbs of turmeric, mustard, and one clove of garlic, which usually freaks people out. I mean, it freaked there... me out because I emailed no. you right away and thought, wait a minute here. What? I, it's I toxic. Was... <laughs> Are you out of your mind? And yeah. So it, it is toxic, but it's also toxic to us. And so for a frame of reference, a 50-pound dog can eat one clove of raw garlic every day without a problem. So one clove of cooked garlic in 16 cups of food, not a big deal. The reason those herbs and spices are there is because in Chinese medicine, they help to move things. They help resolve stagnation. And stagnation in Chinese medicine is what causes pain, cancer, stiffness, you know, so it, it helps. It's more of a preventive strategy or a long-term strategy. So you basically make a big, huge batch. And then I saw you had these silicone bags where you essentially are freezing some of it. How do you heat that up? Make it super easy. So basically what you would want to do is have no more than about five days worth of food in the refrigerator so that it doesn't go bad and give your dog food poisoning or your cat and freeze the rest. And then what we do for our guys is take a measuring cup and scoop out what they need for that meal. And then we'll add some warm water to it to warm it up and take the heat off of it. So you basically have on your guide here, you know, if you're using pork or beef or turkey with or without beans, like just exactly how many tablespoons, whatnot, is a serving. And I, and I know this is more of a complex question, but I did have one follower ask for different breeds, like working breeds versus hunting dogs versus like a dog that sleeps all day. Do certain breeds need more protein or for the most part is this kind of ratio of the third protein to a third fat to a third carbs? Is that pretty appropriate regardless? It's pretty appropriate regardless. I will say, so one of our, one of my long lost buddies, Esau was an English setter and that guy would run sun up to sun down. So he needed more fuel. So what we did is we kept the same volume of the food as far as the, the one-third, one-third, one-third protein, fat, and carbohydrate, but we added extra fat and extra carbohydrates to his each meal to keep his weight up. So I think there's beginning to be some pushback even on the human side as far as eating too much protein causes more inflammation. And so I think the other issue is sustainability. Cats and dogs already eat 25 to 30% of the conventionally produced animal proteins in the United States. So 
trying to push them all to raw is like going to be a problem. And and I think that even now people are having difficulty getting certain types of proteins with consistency in the grocery store. It's really important to be environmentally sustainable with our pets. So how do we transition an animal to this? Like, I kind of feel like, well, my I already give my my dog table scraps, which that's another question. Should I or should I not doing that? I know from a behavior standpoint, it's not nice when you have company for your dog to beg at the table. But sometimes right. if we have a roast, I feel like that's good meat. I'll give her a little bite. Is that okay? Absolutely. And to avoid the behavior issue of begging, just it stays on your plate and goes directly into her bowl and the bowl goes down on the floor. So that sure. way, don't that feed way her from, like, oh, yeah, from, from the, the table. table. Exactly. Yeah. So how do we transition animals to this? Because I feel like this is more doable than raw food. It, I just feel like it's easier as well. And I understand it, is. it sounds like the digestive system has their digestive systems have adapted and that this would be easier on them. Anyways, that's that's what you're saying. So so I cook a big batch. Am I going to, you know, still give her if what her serving was going to be, am I going to give her half of that with half of her dry food for a while? I would start. It depends. So if your pet has ever had any GI issues, I'd start really slow. So start with 75 percent of what she's currently eating, 25 percent new and plan to take two weeks to transition over. Like in the same bowl at the same time, just put it all in there and let her. And how much to start with? So kind of figure out what the current volume is that you're feeding. So if you're feeding two cups twice a day, then basically you would start with a cup and a half of what you're currently feeding and then a half a cup of Crock-Pet diet. Once you get your pet transitioned all the way over to cooked food to the Crock-Pet diet, then start to look, okay, is she doing okay as far as maintaining weight? Is she losing too much weight? What do we need to do to make sure that she stays at a good, healthy body weight, maintains plenty of muscle? So eventually you just make that transition over and then they, most animals to your experience do fine. They do fine. The only time there's an issue is when an owner's like, okay, kibble's out. Let's feed Crock-Pot. Boom. That can create some real problems, some diarrhea and GI issues. Now, when I think of like foundational nutrition, obviously for humans, that's also real food, not processed food, but I'm recommending for my human patients, right? Multivitamin, fish oil, vitamin D, probiotics, various supplements, sometimes other anti-inflammatories or whatnot. So do animals need these as well? And is this kind of where your holistic total body support comes in? Can you speak to that? Absolutely. You know, the same issue, the reason you're asking your patients to take supplements is that the quality of the nutrients that are available in our food just isn't the same as it used to be because of the current farming practices. So to make sure that the diet stays balanced, it's, it is important to use some sort of a supplement. The things that tends to be most lacking in many of the easy-to-find dog supplements on Amazon especially are going to be things like zinc, vitamin D tends to be a wee bit low, and then choline and vitamin E especially. It's easy and inexpensive to get the B vitamins squared away, but these other critical nutrients are, are often left out, sadly. The other thing is, too, with holistic total body support is it contains a lot of glandular materials, which is part of how I help address the problem we were talking about earlier, the side effects, basically, of spaying and neutering. For listeners, what she's saying is, is giving these animals the glands to support their glands, <laughs> essentially. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Feed their endocrine systems. Literally, yeah. yeah. And then the same list of nutrients. So omega-3 fatty acids are going to be super important to add in. And then 
we add other supplements based on what health conditions that pet might be experiencing. They have a terrific amount of inflammation going on. Omega-3s help tremendously, but we might add some turmeric. We might add some ginger. We might add quercetin, actually. I'm glad you said that. But let me, before we go to those, let me come back to holistic total body support. So for someone who hasn't converted over to the croc pet diet yet, like me, right? You gave me some of that to, to try on my animal. You can sprinkle it over the kibble, little the scoop, whatnot. Or if the animal won't eat it that way, how else like would you just give it with some sort of snack or treat or peanut butter or something like that? You could do that. And the other thing is too, is that it seems daunting at first to start cooking for your pet. But if you do nothing else, then go out and buy a bag of frozen Normandy blend vegetables. So essentially some yellow squash, broccoli, cauliflower, I think that's what's in that mix. And take a quarter cup, boil it up with some water to cook it through, put that on top of your pet's food and mix the supplement in with that. It will disappear pretty quickly. Start with the vegetables. So certainly you can give your dog the or cat, your animal, the holistic. Well, let me clarify it. This is for dogs and cats. It is for dogs and cats. It is the only supplement on the market that has enough taurine for cats and actually enough taurine for breeds that are predisposed to heart disease. So let's go back to those other supplements because there was actually a post on Facebook a while ago, someone asking, what do I give my dog to support their joints? And shy of me just referring them to you, I said, well, fish oil, you can give your dog, you know, omegas. But how much? Minimum dose. So minimum dose to balance the omega-3 to 6 ratio, just so the omega-6s are the pro-inflammatory ones, the omega-3s are the anti-inflammatory, and that's a gross oversimplification. But to get them into balance, you would give 100 milligrams per pound of body weight of omega-3 fatty acids. And then the doses, and actually this is one of the few places where veterinary medicine has done some research. And then for dogs that have arthritis, for instance, the dose there is almost 300 milligrams per pound of body weight. So it's a pretty massive dose. Yeah. What about turmeric? Turmeric, it's really, here's what's really interesting though, recently. So turmeric, you can give anywhere from around 20 milligrams of curcumins, especially for your average 50-pound dog. What I've been finding recently, though, is that a lot of dogs actually have uh, GI sensitivity to turmeric because everybody's using it in everything, like it's in every supplement of the world right now. So what a lot of people have been finding relief with is is actually quercetin. Awesome. Yeah, that's wonderful. So how do we dose that, though? Actually, if you head over to the website, there's a product I have called Histopause, and the dosing chart is there. But in a nutshell... For 25 pounds and less, you'd be somewhere around 75 milligrams uh, per day and then, you know, sort of escalates up from there. It can have some GI upset, but that's pretty infrequent. Yeah, quercetin, I think this these last few years of all years is finally gaining some some hype and that it, it certainly supports our immune system. It's a zinc ionophore, it can draw zinc into the cells, antioxidant. Great for allergies, I think, as you were alluding to. It's just wonderful. On the topic of nutrition and nutritional deficiencies, I have a question about my dog liking to chew grass. Is that just something she's doing to soothe her potentially upsated, upset stomach? Or is she just playing? She just she's always eaten grass. <laughs> like Well, I think there's there's a myriad of reasons. And so one is, you know, she's getting some minerals and things of that nature out of the grass. The other is she could have an upset stomach. I mean, that's sort of the standard issue answer. And then interestingly, there's a product called Phytospore made by Megaspore Biotic folks. 
It includes Pediococcus, which is an organism found on grass. It's a microbiotic organism found on grass. So she may be trying to inoculate her gut with something that will, will be helpful. But I think for many, many pets, it really is to help get some fresh green into their diet and to balance, add in some more minerals and nutrients. Awesome. And all these products are on your website. We'll, we'll direct listeners to that at the, the conclusion of the episode. So much information right there. I definitely don't want to feed my dog Doritos and jerky. I need to start this crock pet diet and Dr. Roberts has all the info I need to help. Hop on over to the link we'll post in the show notes for her free download when not to go to the ER, which is pretty cool. and even has a list of what you need to make your own home first aid kit with. And you can use referral code Dr. Stephanie Gray to get 10% off every purchase of the original crock pet diet and 10% off anything in her shop using the link again we'll post in the show notes. Be sure to tune in next week where we'll dive into vaccines, flea tick, and heartworm medications. See you then. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. This podcast is produced by Team Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.